Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I am Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is Professor Dr. Luke Galen. Greetings. And Professor Jeremy Bean. Yellow. This is episode 19 of the show, and it's something of an anniversary for us. It was about this time last year that we recorded the very first episode, which would come to be known as the lost episode. We they, had one that had to be thrown out because it was terrible, and we yep. had one that was lost. And See, if we were in Islam, we'd, that'd be the hidden imam episode. The, the yes, lost. that's right. And after the episode you were listening to has finished, you won't hear from us for about a month or so. We're going on a brief hiatus. This is due to legal entanglements, right, or, or not? What's our excuse? <laughs> well, legal entanglements? We'll go with that. Rehab. So I don't have a problem. You have the problem, man. We'll be coming back in the middle of August with a very special episode, episode 20, which uh, is our very first experiment in field reporting. Ooh. Yes, recorded at the CFI Michigan Long Lake Retreat with a little help from our friends up there. After that, we've got episodes this fall about bringing up godless boys and girls Unholy Matrimony, Pop Goes the Heathen, when we look at atheists and agnostics in pop culture. We got some good interviews coming up, too. We've don't got we? some big interviews. Nick Lally, the author of Nothing, Something to Believe in, is going to be coming into the studio. So, looking forward to getting her here and talking to her for a bit. And we've got a few other really exciting interviews that I'm not sure we can actually uh, say anything about yet. Because we, we're not 100% greenlit on them, so we're going to... The Pope. <coughs> the Pope. <laughs> Benedict. So, and we've got a new side project we're taking on, um, starting with an episode where we are going to put Dobson in the crosshairs as part of our crosshairs series, where we're going to look at the arguments of the specific arguments of certain apologists. Yeah, the idea of the Crosshairs series would be to, um, sort of like we did with William Lane Craig where we do um, more in-depth refutations of a single individual. So that's something to look forward to this fall. We're taking a break, but I think actually we'll be working more on the show during our break than we do when we're not on break. So we've got... Yeah. We want to get some comedy shorts um, done, create a new website, hopefully, with a forum and other good things. So we're going to take a short summer break, but when we come back, it's going to be a better, more professional show, hopefully. Yes, we will be back with a vengeance. Well, on to this week's episode. In the news, this just in, William Lane Craig is a false prophet. His god is a superstition. Furthermore... We drink his milkshake. We drink it up. For those of you who haven't seen There Will Be Blood. You're missing out. Yeah. We apologize for that strange and cryptic introduction. Yes, by the time this airs, if you go to your local newsstand and look at the Christianity Today magazine that's out for this month, you will see a wonderful parody on the infamous 1966 Time magazine issue, Is God Dead? 
Uh, only the Christianity Today version says God is not dead yet. Yet. There's still a chance. Is that like a Monty Python thing? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. It's supposed to be in defiance to the resurgence in atheism, but that's not exactly a confident assertion. Not terribly, no. Wait, wait. He's not dead yet. I feel fine. I think I'll go for a walk now. He's just alien. He just feels very bad. Yeah, critical condition, but uh, he could pull through. What do they have to say about why God isn't dead? What is their new found evidence? The cover page article... God is not dead yet is written by our our bizarro world doppelganger William Lane Craig who we've previously taken on on the show. He says in the article, you might think from the recent state of the atheist bestsellers that belief in God has become intellectually indefensible for thinking people today. But a look at these books by Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens among others quickly reveals that the so-called new atheism lacks intellectual muscle. It is blissfully ignorant of the revolution that has taken place in Anglo-American philosophy, and it reflects the scientism of a bygone generation rather than the contemporary intellectual scene. And Craig proceeds to go talk about how uh, how theistic belief has been resurrected, so to speak, in philosophy departments and academia. And uh, actually, this one, I don't know what you guys think, but uh, this this one reminded me quite a bit of the creationists teach the controversy strategy in that uh, I think Craig is falsely puffing up just how strong of a following in philosophy that theism has gained. But at one point in the article, he says, the very presence of the debate in academia is itself a sign of how healthy and vibrant a theistic worldview is today. So the fact that there is some debate he's trying to frame as a as a evidence for how strong his position is. It was very similar to the creationist thing because there's, you know, what point, some fraction of a percentage of biologists or whatever that are creationists and they try to tout that as they're an embattled minority. Right. And he's trying to say, yeah, there are some philosophers who... Still try to establish God's existence, uh, but again, it's, they're they're in the vast majority minority, and he's trying to make it sound as if there's like a budding controversy. Right, he says that atheism is still the dominant viewpoint at the American university because all oh, those godless colleges they just want to indoctrinate people. He also says that verificationism, which is not a term I'm familiar with died in the 1940s and 50s. Apparently, verificationism is the belief that things must be verified in order to believe in them. That's a bad thing. Thank goodness we got over that, I guess. Yeah, but in the end, he stands up against postmodernism and insists that Christians should be using rational arguments to defend their faith, and I can definitely get behind him there. Absolutely. The problem is he seems to be committing the same mistake in this article that he accuses atheists of, that being blissfully ignorant in the revolution that has taken place in philosophy, and I would add science, in that many of William Lane Craig's arguments that he uses in this article simply do not hold up. And some of that is due to very new and recent findings, but he does not acknowledge those and actually doesn't ever take on, just pretends as if the critiques that have been made of his position haven't been as devastating as they are. Right. And and the arguments he's using, and we talked about this before too when we talked about Craig, are basically the same arguments that Thomas Aquinas used hundreds and hundreds of years ago, which are pretty weak. Yes. So you could say, uh, mirroring what he says in the article, perhaps 
uh, Craig's arguments reflect the medieval attitude of mm-hmm. a bygone generation rather than the contemporary intellectual scene. We're not going to take on William Lane Craig's arguments in this article here because we already have done so. And so while we're away on our short break, if you get a hankering for a little more reasonable doubts, we would encourage you to go to doubtcast.org, our website, where we will have posted on there uh, a bonus episode back from this spring that we released where we take on additional arguments of William Lane Craig that we did not address in our episode Bizarro World where we initially talked about his proofs of God. Originally, that bonus episode was released only to our Facebook and MySpace pages. But if you're not a member of those, you can now get that episode at our website, doubtcast.org. We haven't put it on the feed because it contains outtakes, which have some explicit content in them, and we did not want to jeopardize our iTunes rating. That's a very nice way of putting it. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's a few big boy words in there, as, uh, as I like to tell my students. Just because you act in an infantile way, though, doesn't uh, doesn't vitiate the your ability to, to defeat the ontological argument. That's right. Yeah, there's a, a very, very good intellectual smackdown before we before degrade into yes. ridiculous and perverse. One might almost say there's a certain amount of puerileness that in a ratio to high intellectualness that needs to be discharged. Exactly. We can test that in some other yeah. way. I'm not exactly sure what you meant by that, but it sounded good. Uh, but getting back to this article by William Lane Craig, I do encourage you to check it out and don't buy the magazine because I don't want to give these people money. But on the Christianity Today website, ChristianityToday.com, you can get the full text of the article and he very neatly spells out the arguments and it's a it's a very good resource and it's pretty easy to see what's wrong with them. Yeah. And in fact, he even follows his arguments with saying, now these <laughs> statements, which I interpreted as being basically, uh, now these aren't as ridiculous as they seem. <laughs> right, right. But it's it's an entertaining read. So I would say check that out. We're going to now to one of our favorite segments, the Skeptic Sunday School. This Skeptic Sunday School comes to us uh, based on an email that we got from a listener recently. A listener who writes in and says, quote, I have enjoyed your podcast over the last several months, and I too am on my journey away from my Roman Catholic upbringings towards rational thought. To keep a balanced perspective on life, I will occasionally listen to evangelical radio to listen to their latest jabs at evolution and the like. One argument in favor of Christianity was interesting. I would like your take on it. The pastor argued that unlike followers of Islam and other religions where followers died for something that they believed based on their faith, suicide bombers, etc., the original disciples of Jesus all died to defend their faith as well. The difference here is that no rational person has been known to die for something that they would full well know was not true. Jesus rose from the dead, etc. I have a hard time answering this question to my satisfaction. So, he wants us to take a stab at it. It's a good question, and that is a tough argument. I mean, why would someone willfully die for something that they, they knew was a lie? doesn't sound... It seems very improbable. Yeah. And... Um, and Many apologists think this is a very strong defense of the resurrection. There are many ways to answer it. Kind of the no-brainer answer 
is just to point out the fact that nothing really follows from that conclusion. Yes, it is hard to understand. If Jesus didn't really resurrect, mm-hmm. would would the apostles uh, have endured all that persecution knowing that he really was dead and in the tomb? But is that harder to believe that a 100% man, 100% God came to earth and was crucified and resurrected later? I think you can apply Hume's argument uh, for miracles here and just say you need to reject the greater miracle. And also we have plenty of examples like Jim Jones, uh, the Heaven's Gate cult, David Koresh. These are all modern day examples of people who are willing to die for something that's absurd. And I think it is a similar case. I just got done. I don't know if you've you guys have seen this, but uh, I saw um, the American Experience documentary on the People's Temple, Jim Jones. No, no, but it's, it's fascinating. Really, stuff. It's really, really good. Uh, it's 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 an older it's an older film, but check it out. Um, you know, if you don't know much about that situation, most people know about that. That drinking the Kool Aid. People went down to Af- followed this pastor to Af- Africa or or to South America somewhere. Yeah, but do they know that Jim Jones was a door-to-door monkey salesman before that? Uh, that was mentioned in the film, yes, actually. that is actually true. One of the stranger parts of the film was where this woman, without even cracking a smile, said that her former monkey hung itself and she was able to find <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, the monkey hung himself and then, they, uh, uh, then she uh, luckily found Jim Jones selling monkeys in a new one. Well, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Yeah, as somebody who edits now, I'm I'm just imagining the directors going, this is fantastic. <laughs> I don't know where we put this in, but this is definitely going in the film. Wow. But most of us, the, the most we know is weird cult, they end up in the jungle somehow and drink the Kool-Aid. And what you really realize watching this film is is that they weren't all just brainwashed mindless followers, many of them had significant doubts and reservations about Jim Jones and yet still voluntarily killed himself. So, you know, in situations with group psychology like that and a cult situation, we shouldn't expect that our intuitions on people's motivations would at all hold true. And this wouldn't be any different for something happening in the first century CE than it would be today. Mm. However, I understand that some people might not find that a satisfying enough answer. And so I offer uh, two other arguments to refute that. One would be, and here I will just have to refer you to Bart Ehrman and his wonderful book, The New Testament, um, a textbook that basically summarizes a lot of biblical scholarship and puts the New Testament in a historical context. But the narratives of the persecution of the disciples – and the resurrection appearances, all of these things really cannot be taken as historical fact. These stories have been heavily, heavily redacted. It's indisputable really to any scholar who isn't already a biblical literalist. Nobody really disputes the fact that all of these first century stories have been edited and have evolved. Mm -hmm. So that's one argument. Uh, We're not going to beat that one into the ground here. But there's another interesting argument you could bring up against this, which is the person who wrote us this email says that their pastor argued that unlike followers of Islam and others' religions, where followers died for something they believed based on their faith, what he's getting at is these disciples would have had empirical evidence to the contrary. Right. They would exactly. not have been basing their their ministry on just faith it's that not, Jesus resurrected. It's not a blind faith. And in fact, I think the evidence suggests the opposite. 
the whole theme of Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and now we can actually say with some evidence the whole part about being resurrected three days later, is a literary theme. It existed in Judea and elsewhere before the gospel narratives were even written. And what that means is if we can demonstrate that's the case, then any Christian who's going to try to use that argument that the uh, disciples wouldn't die for something they knew was false, in order to be fair, they would have to accept that certain other historical figures from that time also resurrected using that same standard of evidence. And so they would be forced into a situation where if they accepted Jesus and Christianity as true but not these other cults, they would be guilty of special pleading. And so it's a nice little logical way that you could point out to somebody that this is mistaken. Who are some of these other supposed messiahs and, and resurrection cult figures? Good question. Yes, I thought so. A very exciting discovery has just recently been made. This is from the New York Times, writer Ethan Bronner. On July 6th, the article is entitled, Ancient Tablet Ignites Debate on Messiah and Resurrection. The article begins, quote, A three-foot-tall tablet with 87 lines of Hebrew that scholars believe dates from the decades just before the birth of Jesus is causing quite a stir in biblical and archaeological circles, especially because it may speak of a Messiah who will rise from the dead after three days. If such a messianic description really is there, says the article, it will contribute to a developing reevaluation of both popular and scholarly views of Jesus, since it suggests that the story of his death and resurrection was not unique, but part of a recognized Jewish tradition at the time. Hmm. So he ain't so special after all, huh? Um, among many things, the article discusses research by Israel Knoll. He's a professor of biblical studies at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Noel wrote a book back in 2000 called The Messiah Before Jesus, The Suffering Servant of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where he tried to argue in contradiction to even secular biblical scholarship that Jesus as a Messiah, but not just a Messiah, a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who must endure certain agonies and even die, that this is not original to Jesus. Um, even Bart Ehrman, who I just referred to earlier, and many secular biblical scholars will say this is, the, this is one distinctive Christian doctrine. We do not find before this time um, any notion that the Messiah is somebody who must suffer and must die. Um, this is a, a Christian innovation. Israel Noel argues that actually the Dead Sea Scrolls contain in them evidence that the leader of the uh, Qumran community, which is the community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right. he considered himself to be a messiah. One claim is that he saw himself as a figure who would suffer and die, not only be glorified as you know, being on the right hand of God, but also more controversially that the Qumran community believed that this messiah of theirs after he died, after he was killed by Roman authorities, actually resurrected three days later. Wow. And this takes place a full generation, if not longer, before Jesus is to be born. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls and this Qumran community, the people who dwelled at, at 
Qumran. Often they're considered to be the same people that Jewish historian Josephus called the Essenes. The Essenes were a apocalyptic end-time sect that was very, very strict about certain purity laws and other things. They were kind of the renegade fundamentalists of their day, going off into the wilderness to escape a sinful world and waiting for the end to happen. Like a bleaker group of Amish. Yes, much bleaker. Mm -hmm. But it's been recognized for quite some time that there are very close parallels with the Essenes and possibly John the Baptist. John the Baptist seems to be um, a perfect example of what an Essene at that time might have been like, the way he dressed, the beliefs that he held, uh, some of the uh, pronouncements that he made. And so because there's a connection between the Essenes and John the Baptist, there is therefore a strong connection between Jesus and the Essenes. Sure. Well, let me read you some excerpts from The Messiah Before Jesus by Israel Knoll, one that I would highly recommend. But in, in honesty, I should say it should probably be taken up by those with a little bit of biblical knowledge already. I don't think you need to be a scholar or anything like that, but he doesn't go to, uh, he doesn't go to great lengths to explain things. He assumes some knowledge on part of the readership. So if you're completely new to that thing, it might not be for you. If not, though, it's a great book. It can be read in an evening. It's very short. Hmm. Let me read you some passages from the Dead Sea Scrolls that refer to this Messiah. This comes from a unique text called the Thanksgiving Scroll. Um, one of these passages, who has been despised like me and who has been rejected of men like me and who compares me, who compares to me in enduring evil? Who is like me among the angels? I am the beloved of the king, a companion of the holy ones. This is thought to be a hymn actually composed and referring to the Messiah at Qumran. He uses language from Isaiah 53, referring to himself as the suffering servant, texts which were later seen by Christians as foretelling the life of Jesus. In the self-glorification hymn in this scroll, the person speaks of himself saying, a throne of power in the angelic council which no king of yore will sit therein, I sit. Um, there's a gap in the text, but then it says in heaven. I shall be reckoned with the angels. My dwelling is in the holy council. And uh, uh, even uses a text quoted from Exodus 15, who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods, uh, as referring to himself. So apparently believe that he was in some sense the son of God equivalent with the deity himself. Wow. It's a pretty inflated sense of self there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You could say that he had um, self-esteem run amok. Mm -hmm. Like Luke. Yet, again, he speaks a lot of conflict. Uh, other passages say, My desire is not of the flesh. Who has borne all afflictions like me? Who compares to me in enduring evil? Uh, who has been accounted as despicable like me? Yet, who is like me in glory? And he combines these two senses of intense suffering, uh, of humility, of even being abandoned by God um, in, in a way that before these texts were discovered, it was only thought that Jesus did. For the sake of time, I can't get into too much detail, but I want to share a rough sketch of who this Messiah of the Qumran community was according to Noel's research. Um, you should definitely, if you are interested, read this book yourself uh, because it's like a puzzle. It has to be pieced together from many sources and I should, you know, out of intellectual integrity here, should say that this is not established 
scholarship right now. This is actually a debate that's going on right now. It's evolving as we speak rather than something that's you know been common knowledge to biblical scholars for years. But his argument is that the Qumran Messiah is somebody who Josephus, the Jewish historian, referred to as Menahem the Essene. Now, Menahem is a figure who was allied closely with King Herod, King Herod being the king in the beginning of the New Testament, right. who, who slaughtered, slaughtered the children the and died yeah. while Jesus was still, still a young pup himself. Now, Herod and the Essenes made kind of strange bedfellows. The Essenes were a reactionary group who viewed the world as being unspeakably corrupt and that apocalypse must set things right. They despised the Romans, of course, and Herod was cooperating with the Romans. But they had an alliance with King Herod because they shared a common enemy. Herod, not being from Judea, he was a, a Jew in exile that returned to the region, uh, and being a sympathizer with the Romans, had very few political allies. The former regimes which persecuted the Essenes as being heretics were at odds with Herod, and so they found – so it made sense to kind of have an alliance. And possibly some of the suffering that this Qumran Messiah endured was through living a double life, being um, very closely allied with Herod's court, but also wishing to see the Romans overthrown. So shortly after King Herod died, there was a revolt and it, uh, Menahem had built an army, 160 disciples clad in golden armor and they reached out to the Pharisees at the time um, trying to gain their allegiance to, to make war on the Romans and overthrow them. This was the time that Menahem went from keeping his uh, belief that he was a messiah from keeping it a secret which we also see in the life of Jesus, mm -hmm. in the Gospel of Mark right. especially, from keeping his, uh, uh, his nature as the Messiah a secret to actually now proclaiming it and telling the Pharisees that he was the Messiah. Now the Pharisees, as we know, uh, don't take kindly to people claiming to be the Messiah. That's true. And Menahem suffered a similar fate. He was excommunicated from the Jewish community basically, turned around in shame and then later on during the revolt, he was murdered, his body thrown in the street and a Roman practice at the time to shame um, certain criminals who had died would be to not allow the body to be buried right. for three days. Noel makes the argument that this event where the body, the body is left dead in the streets for three days and then disappears, he makes the argument that the Qumran community later believed God had taken him up, that he had been resurrected and ascended to heaven Wow! because they had to deal with the fact that their prophecies said that, that their leader would be the Messiah yep. but yet he was murdered right. and left to rot for three days. His, his community, this is very interesting too then, his followers then looked into the Hebrew Bible to see if they could find – to see if its prophecies shed any light on this and guess what some of the passages they found which they felt um, clarified the situation were. One important one was Zechariah 12.10 which says, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. This verse they referred uh, – they believed was referring to their Messiah who had been pierced. 
They looked, of course, to Isaiah 53, where it speaks of a suffering servant that was despised, quote, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Mm -hmm. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried on our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. They looked in the book of Daniel and prophecies about the beast, things that we talked about, uh, I think, in just our episode prior to this, mm -hmm. and believed that some of that the in Daniel 7, uh, the beast who, quote, makes war with the saints and prevailed over them referred to certain political figures at the time that killed their Messiah and was persecuting their sect. In other words, they used many of the same proof texts that later Christians would use to refer to Jesus mm -hmm. to explain how it was that their Messiah could have died. Makes the Christian seem like a lot of Johnny-come-latelys. It does. But the real big problem with Israel Knoll's book was that he really couldn't – he didn't have any solid textual evidence to really nail that last point down, which was all we have are references and certain texts to the idea that his body would have been left in the street for three days. We have no clue that they incorporated that in um, to their, their prophecies about this guy, that they ever looked back at that and saw that as – something that was preordained by God to happen and in accordance to prophecy, that text was just not available. And what's so striking about this new discovery, this pillar, which has been called the Dead Sea Scrolls in Stone, is that it contains that text. So back to the article from the New York Times. In this tablet they found, lines 19 through 21 of the tablet, quote, in three days you will know that evil will be defeated by justice. The article also says, and other lines speak of blood and slaughter as pathways to justice. In line 80, the pillar may say it's, it's, there's some gaps in it and there's some debate over this, but Noel and other scholars believe line 80 may in part read, in three days you shall live, I, Gabriel, command you. Gabriel being the archangel. Yes. Now, the dating of this, this tablet has seemed to be legitimate. Initial investigation into it doesn't – it does not appear to be a forgery of any kind. Um, now, as science goes, you know, we'll have to hear the debate pan right. out and see what people think. Uh, this one isn't in the bag yet. But if this interpretation is true and if there doesn't seem to be any sort of foul play with the relic itself, this will – add a lot of support to Noel's thesis, which mm -hmm. is, yeah, Jesus is... He's one of many. Yeah. He's following a certain tradition. Mm -hmm. As said before, there are, um, uh, through John the Baptist, there are plausible connections to how he, he personally could have had his ideas influenced by, uh, by the Essenes. Mm -hmm. And if this is true, we have demonstrated not only were there other messiahs, but there were also suffering messiahs who their leaders believed died and resurrected three days later. One final note should be is that this will not just be controversial to Orthodox Christians, but this, this finding, if true, will be controversial again to secular scholars because many have tried to claim that the three days in the ground and then being resurrected again is one line of evidence that supports that the Gospels have a much later written date and that these stories came after 
Jesus' ministry and that a historical Jesus may not have believed himself to be a Messiah or any of these things. And if this turns out to be true, um, that casts a lot of doubt on those interpretations and some uh, secular scholarship will have to be reevaluated as well. But it's an interesting one to watch. And as far as answering our emailer's question, I think it's obvious how this relates and that is it seems very plausible that belief in the resurrection was just another doctrine of faith. The disciples may have not seen it even necessarily but may have been convicted in their hearts that it must have been true because even if they didn't see an empty tomb, they believed that it must have happened because it was going to happen. Certainly. So definitely research that that you biblical scholar junkies out there who may be listening to this uh, might want to follow. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, Jim Underdown. And welcome to Michigan. Uh, You're a a Midwestern boy, I gather. Yes, I am. Uh, I was born in Chicago, raised in the western suburb of Wheaton, and I've been to Michigan many a time. Yes. Uh, Jeremy's old stomping grounds too. Yes, yes. I'm a, a Wheaton native for the first part of my life. So a little bit about your background. Now, you are the director of CFI Los Angeles, correct? Right. Uh, and you're also the head of a organization called the Independent Investigators? Independent Investigations Group, uh, yes, which deals with paranormal claims. And mostly in Southern California, but uh, paranormal claims in Southern California. Yeah, there are a lot of those. Yes, quite a bit. Uh, We are surrounded by Scientologists and Mm -hmm. uh, psychic readers and tarot cards. It's it's funny because some of the um, some of the people who have been on TV over the past ten years, like uh, James Van Prague and Sylvia Brown and John Edward, have done some Mm -hmm. taping right down the street from us. So we take that personally and go <laughs> see what they're up to. So being in Hollywood, do you get opportunities to then go on television and present the skeptical point of view at all? Yeah, I've had a fair number of opportunities. I've done a, a couple of uh, Penn and Teller's bullshit episodes. I've been on Proof Positive, um, Histories, Mysteries. They even had me on Hannity and Combs one time. Really? When... Uh, it was, that sounds frustrating. <laughs> it, it wasn't too bad. It was a little frustrating, but um, they had. It was when Dr. Pepper put one nation instead of under God. They put one nation dot 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 indivisible on their pop cans. Wow! Really? And um, that, of course, drew some fire from the religious folks who. That uh, must have been a West Coast thing, because I sure don't remember seeing those cans. No, uh, and you would think the shelves would be full of them here in Michigan. <laughs> I think the whole thing sort of went away. Pretty, I think Dr. Pepper just didn't want to be in a yeah. giant controversy over it. So because it's Dr. Pepper. I well, mean, really those don't. educated elites, you know, once you get a PhD, uh, yeah, Dr. That's Pepper. Right, is, that's right. <laughs> uh, before we started recording, you were telling us a story about your trip up from Chicago. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, one of Michigan's finest state troopers pulled me over, and I was speeding. I, I can't blame her a bit for pulling me over. And she said, what are you doing up here? And I said, well, I actually am going to Grand Rapids to give a talk. And she said, what's the talk on? And I hesitated, and I thought, oh, is this going to hang me or help me? And I said, 
well, it's on the Ten Commandments. And she kind of smiled and took my license and went back, and I asked her if she would consider giving me a warning. And she came back <laughs> and let me go. Uh, no ticket. So, And um, you didn't violate any of the commandments, incidentally. I know. I was tempted to violate the <laughs> thou shalt not bear false witness against his police neighbor, but um, <laughs> I told the truth. So – about the Ten Commandments. Many claim exactly what we need in this nation is a little more education in those Ten Commandments, maybe even posting them up in the schools and uh, courthouses. Yes, and uh, where everybody will be reminded of those great foundational moral truths that supposedly our nation is even built on. And Well, it's funny. I mean, first of all, most people don't couldn't even name the Ten Commandments. And I think there was some congressman who stood up pontificating about mm. why the Ten Commandments. And somebody said, can you name them? And he, and he couldn't. You know, that's sort of telling right there that people really don't even know what's in the Ten Commandments. And then if you really take a look at them, the, the commandments that are really have to do with morality or ethics are so obvious don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat on your wife, don't murder people. We really need a sign that says don't murder people. <laughs> you know, some of the, the, the first three commandments have nothing to do with morality. The first commandment is no other gods before me. The second commandment is worship, no graven images, no false idols. And the third is do not take God's name in vain. What the hell does that have to do with behavior in our mm -hmm. society? Nothing. Um, and then another, you know, you can make the same argument for take the Sabbath off. You can't tell people when they can work or not work. It, could you imagine the uproar if if we passed a law that said nobody can work on Sunday or nobody can work on Saturday? It would be crazy. Yeah, too bad you're not going to be in Grand Rapids this Sunday because you would see what that would be like. Not only is the <laughs> post office closed, but all of the bars and restaurants downtown are closed on Sunday. Oh, really? And oh, it's a ghost town. The lawnmowers are strangely silent. <laughs> yes. That sounds paranormal now. Yeah, yeah, yeah well. I, I mean, I'm all for a day off. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's, you know, religion or government should tell people when they can and cannot work. It's kind of crazy. And it seems to me that, that looking at the Ten Commandments, and of course there are at least two versions of the Ten Commandments in the Bible, one of which includes do not see the baby goat in its mother's milk, which should be displayed in courthouses, I feel. Um, <laughs> That's but, a big problem, especially in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that there's a lot of very basic moral rules missing from the Ten Commandments. Yes, don't kill. That's important. But there's nothing protecting the rights of children. There's nothing uh, against rape. That's a great point. Uh, there's a tacit appro approval of slavery. Right. Um, on the commandment, uh, it's the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. I think it's the fourth. Um, See, even you don't know. Yeah, well, I, I, oh, I do I'm, get them mixed I'm up. I'm trying to remember that one. Too. Uh, I think it's the fourth commandment, but it says... It's in there somewhere. Um, it, it talks about who gets the day off in the Sabbath, and they talk about the manservant and the woman servant, and even the cattle within thy, thy gates, but the wife is not listed in there. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the woman of the family is not specifically listed among those who gets the day off. In the Decalogue itself, when coveting another person's wife is mentioned. Right. It's sort of in the same breath as cattle and manservant and mm -hmm. 
you know, your neighbor's ass, uh, which I assume means a donkey. So my neighbor's got a great <laughs> for an eighty-year-old man. He uh, he works out. Stop your coveting. <laughs> well, that's the other thing too. I mean, the cornerstone of the U.S. economy is coveting things. If there's no coveting anymore, Jack, you know, we're going to be buying, you know, rice and sugar and that's it, living in grass shacks. That's an excellent point. That's not an argument I've ever heard before, but yeah, one you're you absolutely would right. think would have some appeal amongst uh, the fiscal conservatives for certain. Absolutely. How would the people at Rolex feel about the cessation of coveting? <laughs> I can take a stab at it that they aren't coveting. It's just God has shown the blessings that he has bestowed upon them. So it's, uh, you know, are you going to suppress God's uh, rewards? No, that sounds good. That sounds like something you'd hear from a televangelist with a big diamond ring on his finger. <laughs> and I've met Benny Hinn a couple of times. So, really? Oh, yeah, nice guy? Um, he is a nice guy, yeah. He's uh, he's full of crap, but he's <laughs> he's nice. What brought you to meet Benny Hinn? Actually, a good friend of mine for a while was his head of security, and he got us into a couple of concerts, and I do mean concert because it's yeah. big-time lights and sound. And uh, um, so I, a couple of times I got a, a floor seat to see what was going on, and then we went back. The uh, independent investigations group went back, and I tried to get healed once and just missed getting up on stage. Oh, wow. Yeah. That That's was great. An interesting audition process we to should, get up there. We should probably not assume that our listeners actually know who Benny Hinn is. Oh, uh, yeah, Benny Hinn, is, he, he typically wears a white sort of Nehru jacket, and he's got a big comb over. <laughs> and uh, he's he's been based in a few different places, mostly out of Orlando, but I think maybe now in Orange County, California. You know, he's just got a huge organization and huge he's, revival meetings yeah. across the nation. And he's one of the best known faith healers in the yeah. world. Right. He likes to blow on people. Yes. And there's great YouTube videos of him like snapping a man's broken arm back into place and, and that sort of thing. It's it's interesting. I, I personally do not believe in faith healing or anything like that, but I can understand why people do. Is because sometimes when you see, you know, somebody getting out of a wheelchair, for example, and uh, taking a stumbling a few steps forward and then and then walking or giving away their crutches, I mean, it, it seems persuasive, like any sort of magic trick. And um, your time spent as a skeptical investigator, I mean. What are some of the tricks that a faith healer would use to? You'd see a different uh, a different scene if you were actually in the stadium. We went to really? I saw him a couple of times at the Anaheim Pond in Orange County, and uh, the people who are really sick, who are on gurneys and in wheelchairs, the really messed up people, are not allowed to go up on stage to approach the stage. Hmm. And um, the other interesting thing that he does that. That sort of uh, is indicative of his sort of tricky ways is he says at some point earlier in the presentation, he says, someone has a bad knee and God's God's spirit is coming into your knee. You have a bad stomach. You have a bad back. You have a, this problem, that problem. You're going to quit drugs. He doesn't name anyone. Right. Later, someone out there. Someone out there in this crowd of 19 or 20,000 people. Someone's got a bad knee. Has He's got a bad knee. About me. So then later on he says, if God came through you, 
earlier come down on the stage. So technically, by the time you actually get on the stage, you've already been healed. So when he puts his hands on you, it's not him doing it. God has already done it. But people, of course, are so uh, wrapped up in the moment that they fall over anyway. A A lot of the people you see being rolled up on wheelchairs did not arrive in wheelchairs. They were placed in wheelchairs after they arrived. No one is really doing any diagnosis about what people are suffering or not. It's all based on their own testimony. And I know this because I worked my way up through the line but with a good story. I said a bolt of lightning came through my knee. I haven't been able, it hasn't been right since high school football and I, it feels fantastic. I just run, ran down from the upper deck and they said, okay, step forward, move. I skipped 30 people in the line. Uh-huh. And then I told the story again and then I got to close to the front of the line where people were waiting to get on the stage, and they said, um, they introduced me to a woman who they said was a doctor, an MD, and I said, she said, what's wrong with you? I said, my knee, and I started going into my spiel again, and she said, no, no, specifically, what's wrong with you medically? And I said, well, my exterior cruciate ligament was torn in high school. Now, for those of you anatomy fans out there, there is no such thing as an exterior (laughs) cruciate ligament, and she didn't seem to know that. And just said, okay, come on forward. And I was oh. like three from the stage when uh, they shut the – when we know they ran out of time. Oh. Um, so it's it's purely an audition process and I think they're going to you know pull people up there who are going to look good in their testimony. Sure. Now, had you gotten up there, what would you have done? Oh, I had a great plan. Yeah. I was going to – I was going to get in a three-point stance just like in football <laughs> uh-huh. and I was going to sit, you know, demonstrate how fantastic this was this had worked and then I was going to fall down in a heap in a miserable pain that it blew out again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought that would have been great. So about the 10 commandments. I'll I'll talk a little bit about the recent history in uh in the great state of Alabama with Judge Roy Moore um, sneaking a giant monument of the Ten Commandments into the California or the uh, Alabama Judiciary Building, and then being admonished later and and uh, pulled out of his office as the uh, Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. We're not that. upholding the law. Well, interestingly yeah, enough. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the worst hypocrisy, and and he totally turned it into a a, a big political. I was going to say he's really used it to his benefit because he's out there. He's writing bad poetry about the Ten Commandments. Is he really? Yeah, you should check that <laughs> oh, out. Um, you know, and it, it should be noted that I, I'm not against the posting of the Ten Commandments. I'm against having governmental entities. Post it in the governmental facilities. Mm-hmm. The no religion should get the great the benefit of the great weight of the U.S. government behind it. Not Christianity, not Judaism, no religion. So that's the problem. It's it's not the display. It's the public officially endorsed display of mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments. And beyond that, I mean, because there are different denominations and sects have different lists. You would have to be establishing some denomination's authority over another. Even a translation. Depending on which – unless you had all the different variants and you posted them all together. Right. And this was actually one of the problems years ago when when the the Fraternal Order of Eagles got involved in this. They're the ones who sponsored the big 
granite commandments. Right. And um, they initially said no to the idea of displaying the commandments because they thought it was too sectarian. Mm -hmm. So then they got uh, a bunch of denominations together to agree on a set of commandments that they thought that they could live with. Really? I didn't know that. So they, the, the monument was some sort of hybrid or, or it was voted on? Yeah, I think so. I don't think huh. it's, it's strictly the uh, – that's a good question. I'll have to compare what was on the monuments to the King James, which is hmm. sort of the sure. standard. Yeah. Now, what I've heard, and, and maybe you can – dispel this as urban legend or not, but it was on NPR, so I think it's probably reliable. Oh, well, then it must be true. Um, is that a lot of these Ten Commandment uh, monuments that are all over the place and, and have been for a number of years were originally done as promotions for the film The Ten Commandments? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. Cecil B. DeMille um, heard the, there's a judge called uh, Rugemeyer or Rugemer, I think his name is, up in Minnesota. It was his idea to post the Ten Commandments as a way to thwart wayward youth right. tendencies. Right, of course. Um, which we know that would be effective. So they don't see any baby goats in their mother's milk. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, big problem in Minnesota as right. well. So Rugemer started the idea. Cecil B. DeMille heard about it and then contacted him and said, he said, why don't we put them on bronze plaques and mm. place them around? And then Rugemer, who's from one of the largest granite-producing states in the <laughs> United States, said, why not make them granite instead of bronze? So that's what happened. And, uh, you know, that was really the start of it. Uh, you know, people were just, you know, they weren't trying to do anything evil or anything, but they are certainly trying to foist their own religious beliefs on the rest of the people. And that's right. where it crossed the line. There's definitely an agenda, even if the agenda is just promoting a Charlton Heston movie. Right. These people all had an agenda for this beyond just the uh, the simple public good. I mean, if you're going to sort of break the wall of separation and say, OK, yeah. we're going to allow uh, religious text or religious ideas into the courtrooms or the schoolrooms, then where do you stop? Right. I mean, I've never known how I've how to feel about that either, because like we had this incident with the um, the Hindu chaplain that gave a prayer for Congress. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt it was awfully wrong that people that people booed him out and everything like that wouldn't let him speak. Because if there's already prayers, well, then they should let one of any denomination. But at the same time, I thought, well, this is still religion in government. Uh, we almost wouldn't mind so much if – I mean, if you wanted to do – if you wanted to figure out the population figures and say, okay, 80 percent of the country is Christian, so 80 percent of the time we're going to do a sort of a Christian prayer in front of Congress. Mm -hmm. But – you know what? Ten percent of the country are atheists. So you, we should have Robert Ingersoll or Richard Dawkins or Paul Kurtz or someone else should be read at, at that 10 percent sure. of the time. Absolutely. So I would almost be happy to just get my fair share of the time. If you're going to open it up to everyone, then give me 10 percent. And boy, hang on to your socks because yeah, we'll pick a doozy of it. Yeah, we'll pick up you. a doozy that's gonna that's gonna slam something else. So, free speech or no, you decide. Do you know what you would choose? Um, 
Boy, you know, uh, um, right now I'm I'm still mourning for George Carlin. So wouldn't yes. George Carlin be perfect for that? <laughs> he, he was fantastic. You know, I I did stand up comedy for five years. I made my living. But George Carlin was always one of my idols. And even when he got sort of angrier in his later years, uh, he just let loose. Uh, you just had to love his his openness and mm-hmm. and his. Uh, social commentary about it. If you mind indulging me, what was one of your favorite Carlin acts? If you were going to pick a Carlin act to be a uh, a prayer <laughs> at opening Congress, um, I, what would be your Carlin <laughs> reading? Oh, there, it's, it's really a tough thing to choose. But I did like some of his early, when he was doing stuff about religion in the 70s, it wasn't so much pointed right at a li- religion. It was more talking about his life in Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, he, he used to do a bit about uh, these guys asking smart-ass questions in class. Like, uh, hey, Father, can God create a rock so big that he himself could not lift it? Ah, <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, and then creating weird sets of sins and asking if that were a sin. If you missed Mass on Sunday and then you crossed the international dateline and came back, <laughs> but there was an eclipse and, you know, <laughs> would that then be a sin? So I just I love that kind of stuff because you know it's certainly it's first and foremost funny, but it also asks these sort of smart questions that shed this light of these are ridiculous rules. Some of these things, yeah. So George Carlin, we salute you wherever you are in the ground, riding probably (laughs) as he would have wanted, (laughs) as he expected, right? Well, thank you so much, Jim Underdown, for joining us uh, on the show today. We wish you a safe trip back to L.A. And, uh, and uh, well, I, I guess you can't tell a skeptic good luck, can you? <laughs> I, I like the sentiment. I don't believe it strictly, but I, you can say it. I appreciate the sentiment. Thank you. It's been my great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you. We're going to now bring you another installment of God Thinks Like You featuring our very own psych professor, Dr. Luke Galen. It's always interesting to me to see people uh, often make the assumption that religiosity is somehow uh, a buffer against being uh, aggressive or vindictive, like many people suggest that you read more the Bible verses to children to get them to play nice with each other, or this assumption that somehow it it tamps down your negative impulses. Sure. Doesn't it make or, people peaceful and, and loving? Well, or we just got done talking about the Ten Commandments. What about this discussion of how, well, if we were to only post the Ten Commandments, we'd have less violence in the schools and people yeah. would be better to one another. What makes psychology interesting is that you can actually then investigate these questions empirically and then see, is that the case that religious people are somehow less aggressive or vengeful as a result of their religiosity? Uh, you're a verificationalist, aren't you? Yeah. It's oh. Silly me. I try to, to actually establish whether something is actually true or not. So uh, what I wanted to do is talk about a couple of studies that are out there that are cool experiments that actually look in a laboratory type situation, mm-hmm. whether those uh, – what are the effects of religion on somebody's tendency to be uh, aggressive or vindictive. Um, so what I did is I picked a couple um, uh, articles from journals uh, um, and that focus on this topic. One of the things I wanted to point out though is that um, – uh, an interesting aspect of this is what somebody says about their religion. That is a self-report. I feel nicer because I go to church versus 
what we can able to what we're able to establish in a lab is what do they actually do, hmm. uh, and that you can assess somebody's actual behavior as opposed to their self-report, and that's an important distinction. In fact, the, the first one I want to talk about is a, a study on vengefulness. The the lead author of this is uh, name is Greer. Uh, this is from 2005 in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, and she what she does is she looks at a particular type of um, religiosity and what the way that you can op, you can operationalize this is. Uh, that you can ask people to um, self-report measures to say, you know, religion is important to me. I live my religion. That's known as intrinsic religiousness because mm. it's intrinsic to somebody's own uh, identity. Uh, there's other types of religiosity. You can measure how often somebody goes to church or, you know, behaviors. Or there's a type called quest religiousness, which is actually the inverse of what you'd think of as being fundamentalist. You're open-ended if you're a high quest religiousness. You say, I'm not sure about my truths. I'm leaving open room for change. Okay. What she found was that uh, when you do laboratory studies of, of, uh, of aggression, you actually find different types of relationships with somebody's type of religiosity and their type of aggressiveness. So one of the ways that you measure this, the standard uh, measure of laboratory aggression, is a retaliatory type of aggression. If you go into a lab situation, and th uh, this is called the Taylor aggression paradigm, where you're paired up with another person in another room who, of course, doesn't exist. That's what they like to mess with your mind. Mm -hmm. But there's a shock apparatus there, and you're told, oh, you're going to be in a study on reaction time, and if you're faster than the other person, they get a shock, and if they beat you, then you get a stuff. Isn't there another one where they have headphones on and you get to play a loud noise yes. over their headphones? Yeah, sometimes people use actual electric shock. Other times people use a, a blast of noise because that's often, you know, that you could, that's seen as being a little bit more humane and that you can't damage somebody or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're eardrums, but yeah. whatever. So uh, in this study, though, what they found was that uh, the, so the person was told you're competing with this other person and then uh, you get to set the level of your shock as to what they're going to get if you win. And you can see what they've oh. selected for, that you get, uh, which of course they don't even exist. But then there's a sudden escalation. The other person announces they're going to give you the maximum amount, but you happen to win that trial. And then the measure is, will you then up the ante to them to uh. say, oh, you're going to shock me? I'm going to shock you. So it's a measure of somebody's retaliatory aggression. Hmm. So what they found basically in this study, though, was that they had measured at a previous point in time the person's level of you know, uh, religious activities, church attendance, how much they give to the church, and their level of intrinsicness versus questness of religiousness. And what they found was that uh, what you would imagine is true that people who report that they're highly intrinsically religious, my religion is important to me, self-report that they're less aggressive. Mm -hmm. So when they fill out the questionnaire, they say, oh, no, no. I'm not vengeful. Uh, but in the actual laboratory study, didn't make a difference. The, the, their level of intrinsic religion wasn't at all related to the level of shock they retaliated. But the person's quest religiousness, that is the extent to which their religion was open-ended, predicted being less retaliatory. Those people were nicer to the other people even when they think they were going to get shocked. So once again, that's the people who are undecided with regards to a lot of their religious yeah. views and they want to seek out and find. Right. To the extent that you're a reverse fundamentalist, that you're yeah. not sure about things, you are actually shocked the person less. Uh, and then actually the donations to church, that sort of thing correlated with giving higher shocks, actual shocks. So those people were more than mm, yeah, I thought that was... That was an interesting little correlation there. The, the more money uh, they gave to church, the more they would retaliate. The more they retaliated. Against Is that the some sort of um, – could that be some sort of mechanism like, well, I've done – I've built up my 
spiritual credit by giving so much so I can afford to – That's one explanation, yeah. Hmm. Or the other one might be that, that what you're tapping is not so much a religiosity as being like an authoritarian streak. Maybe for some reason if highly conservative authoritarian people give money to churches to up their – personal, you know, this is my religion, I'm going to give money to them, and they also have to be more, be more vindictive. Okay. So it might be something more fundamental underneath. Yeah. Uh, now, another study that was that was done uh, after this one, actually, this year uh, from 2008, this is the lead author's name is Leach. Uh, they wanted to actually, uh, to see whether specifically getting the subjects to think about their religion before this shock trial mm. would make them any nicer. That is, if I was to meditate upon God and religion, maybe I would be less likely to retaliate against so my opponents. So it's going to put their soul at peace, like placing the Ten Commandments in a classroom. Exactly. Okay. So would, would, would uh, making religiosity more salient in your mind tamp down your tendency to be? Uh, and so the, the short answer to this was the same in the t- same type of retaliation paradigm, would you shock the other person to retaliate against them if you think they're going to shock you? No. Uh, they had people who were asked to read any type of Bible verse before the experiment to bring them closer to God. Another group was asked to meditate or pray to become closer to God. Yeah, what, what was their definition again? Because I was kind of shocked when I saw that. When I, when I was reading the uh, abstract, I thought for sure that the meditation group might reduce be reduced in aggression. No, their definition of meditation was a little bit curious in that they also included prayer or meditation so that if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to just ponder upon God – uh, in their own way, they allowed it, they left it up to them uh, to ponder about God any way that they th- would think them bring bring that would bring them closer to God. And and again, it didn't make a difference at all either direction. In so this God. wasn't like a stress relief kind of Buddhist mindfulness type of meditation or something, or, no, the, or was it? The reason they left it open was is that they wanted the person to it to be a measure of that own person's the way that they would maybe in real life go Their about self religious experiment. Right. Yeah. So in okay. other words, if you are a person who says, I don't believe in that meditation crap, I'm just going to pray to my God, that that person would be allowed to do that. Sure. Or if somebody wanted to be more like, I'm not sure that God exists, I'm going to meditate upon that, they were allowed to do that. And again, but they, similar to the Greer study we talked about before, they found that the self-report of somebody's level of intrinsic religiousness, my religion is important to me, correlated with the self-report of being, they said they would be less aggressive, but there was no actual effect in the experiment of, of shocking less. I, I think what, what you're seeing, the picture that you're seeing with this is that it's one thing to say that you're going to be less aggressive. It's another thing to actually, when you're not maybe being monitored or when that's not in your mind, to, to be that, to actually have that measured as such, to, to be less aggressive to somebody. Yeah. And so religion might have an effect to might get people to... Might convince you you're a good person. Yes. And I think that's... <laughs> Even that's, if it's making you a bad person. That's one of the implications of this is that it's, is it a good thing for you for religion, some people say, well, it's, it's pretty harmless. Let people think what they want. Is it really harmless to have a bunch of people going out thinking that they're actually better people because of something when in, in reality it's not making them any less aggressive? They're thinking they're better people than they are. Yeah. Hmm. There's such a thing to be said to, to actually have a little bit lower self-esteem makes you a nicer person. Now, the third study I want to talk about, though, is the, the directly addressing would simply exposing somebody to religious messages. Could it actually make somebody more uh, nasty and aggressive. This is a study by uh, an a, a aggression researcher named Bushman from 2007. Uh, this journal was Psychological Science. But they wanted to see would exposure to a particularly violent scripture actually increase your aggression. Uh, and so in this study, what they did was they picked a nasty piece of uh, – we might have actually mentioned this one on the show before – a nasty piece of biblical scripture from Judges. This is where a woman was – the story was from Judges 19 where uh, a member of a, a tribe – uh, stays at a house and a crowd gathers outside. I don't know how they, why they gather. And they asked to have the man sent out so they could 
you know, so molest could, him. Yes. And, and, the, and the old man says, no, 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 don't take this man. He's a guest. Uh, here, take his concubine. So they rape her and they leave her for dead on the steps and she dies. And he goes back to his Israel tribe saying, you know, these people in this adjoining area were uh, attacking me. What are we going to do to them? And uh, the Bible passage then says they, they, God says that they should go out and chase in those people and they wage warfare and, of course, slaughter everybody. So it's, a, it's actually kind of a bizarre – Rape and slaughter uh, and all slaughter. sorts of good wholesome messages. So in this, what the study did was they had people exposed to this. Uh, in the first part of the study, they just had students that were subjects from Brigham Young University. So presumably oh, wow. these are all you know, religious people at a, at a Mormon uh, LDS university. And they said 99% reported believing in God in the Bible. The, con- the condition of this was some of them, the passage was correctly identified as coming from the Bible. But in the other group – they just told them this is a study of ancient scripture. It didn't okay. label it ancient as being text biblical. kind of thing. Yeah, yep. an ancient scroll. And uh, and then the other condition was uh, in some of the passages they left in the part where the God says to go out and get the other tribe, get revenge. And the other part, they left those sentences out. It wasn't, in other words, sanctioned by God. Uh, the people they just, just did it. took vengeance, right? Yes, okay. So the gist of it was the same measure was used uh, in that they were using a retaliatory aggression thing. Uh, this time it was sound blast, though. Would you, if you think somebody else is going to get you, would you blast them with sound or not? And so the dependent measure was what's the maximum amount of decibels you would blow somebody out if you thought that they were going to... This this would be important, Luke, because what they're controlling for is it... Um, is this just being primed by a violent text mm-hmm. as opposed to right. is this being primed to your belief that this is scripture? Right. Because otherwise, if you didn't have that little... that extra control group, we, we wouldn't be sure what was causing the aggressive. Right. It, it could just... just be whenever you're exposed to... An aggressive Video content. Games, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. okay. So what they found was – the gist of it was in the, the dependent measure of aggression that both conditions made a difference. That is with these Brigham Young students, if it was God-sanctioned violence, they gave more blasts of sound to retaliate against somebody later on. And if the uh, if text simply uh, was put in the context of being a Bible as opposed to just an ancient scroll, they actually gave more – blasts of aggression too. So uh, both of those separately made a difference in students that believe in God. If the violence was put in context of God says it's okay for these people to retaliate, Mm -hmm. they were more aggressive later on. So the text just as an ancient text made them more aggressive than without the text and then the text as biblical text text made them more aggressive still? The, the text as, a, as being labeled as being the Bible as opposed to an ancient scroll made them more aggressive. And right. the, the text as being God-sanctioned violence yeah. made them more aggressive than if it was just uh, the, per, the people in the story taking it upon themselves. So not violent. only does meditating on God and, and reading presumably peaceful biblical passages make people not less aggressive, but yes. reading violent passages from the Bible as biblical text makes them more aggressive. Yeah, and the, the the other sample they gave this study to actually they did the Brigham Young one, but they wanted to actually say, well, all these people are religious. What yeah. would be the effect on non-religious people? So they re- replicated the study in the Netherlands where oh. as we would probably University hear, of Amsterdam. Yeah, so you could you could you could bet that some of these people are uh, are non-religious and, and so <laughs> yeah, and into yeah, smoking at coffee shops and, and they had windmills. So that, they, that's what, all I know about the Netherlands. You're probably yeah correct in that. So they had some people there who believed in God and some people who didn't. Mm-hmm. And again, the study found that it was here. It was a combination. You had to first believe in God 
and have that God-sanctioned violence passage, those people were more aggressive. But for the people who didn't believe in God, as you would imagine, it didn't make a difference to them whether the passage contained God-sanctioned violence or not. They don't care because they don't believe in God. Right. So what this would say is that it's not simply just exposure to violent media or reading a text where nasty things happen. If it's put in place in the context, again, that this is something that you take seriously as being you're a religious person, that's a story from your God, mm-hmm. and God says go out and get those people, that has a special kind of a double whammy effect where that combination makes you more likely to be violent. Now, how big an influence did it have? I mean, were these people, you know, did they get all bloodlusty and really let them have it? Or are we talking marginal difference? Actually, several people were stabbed in this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the, gonna, yeah, the ethics of the study, no, I don't think, would allow you to measure that dramatic yeah, of a difference. In order right. to be at, the reason they use these paradigms of sound blast and shock is because you can't have a study where people actually might be at risk of pillaging you know, throughout the, <laughs> the, the campus. But uh, I think that I often hear this criticism in my class when students don't like – presumably religious students – don't like this type of thing. They always criticize the study as being trivial. Oh, well – it's just a lab thing. You you see this a lot also when the Milgram, famous Milgram study came out of that was saying, oh, sure, shocking people, but that's not real aggression. Mm. But these tasks, these paradigms have been correlated with actual, you know, people with a higher self, you know, with histories of violence tend to be more aggressive on these things. Now, so if, if your question is, would it result in people actually going out and like, you know, hitting somebody or smiting them, I guess, uh, unknown. We can't really establish a cause and effect thing, but it certainly – there it's, are separate studies. That it's not are, having the opposing effect of making them less aggressive, sure. which which would be what the um, advocates of religion in in schools and, well, and that sort of thing would be suggesting. And think about with this: you often hear the the Bible thumping type population argue against violent TV and violent video games and media by saying, and "Oh, Manson if and, you expose people to violence sure. on TV, it's gonna make those kids more aggressive." Or they say, "You know, let's post the Ten Commandments because that'll tamp people's aggression down." If those people make those arguments, then they have to uh, also be open to the fact that their own scripture would make people violent. You can't pick and choose and say in one right. case, and this is something that always irritated me when, when people say violent media and video games and movies, that makes people more violent. Crack open a Bible. How come that doesn't make, if right. their argument is, well, God's teaching people a lesson. No, you, you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's just obvious that the people will relate to, um, well, I don't know if this this is borne out experimentally, but I would think people would relate to content in, in which they are aware that it's a fiction. It is a fantasy content differently than something that would yeah. they would believe if, is actually true. If you really believe that God wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah and you hear this from like in the homosexual thing all the time, that you are probably more likely to then to take it much more seriously that, hey, maybe God would want me to go wipe out some of these behaviors or something if you actually think this is history. Right. Yeah, so I think that, that uh, just to kind of summarize that, that those studies, I think that it's interesting that people often assume that, that because something, a material is – is categorized as religious, it would have a balm effect of, of of being more making us more moral or more contemplative. But actually, in, in some cases, the opposite is true. At, at the very least, it doesn't appear to have pondering about religion doesn't appear to have a, a, a negative effect on violence. And in fact, pondering some nasty religious materials might actually make us more violent. And of course, there's examples like. Um 9-11, which is violence that's spurred on by religion. The uh, the Koran didn't cool their tempers, in fact. Now, a mm-hmm. perversion of the religion, um, if, if that's the, where you want to go with that, sure. But it's because they believe that this is true yeah. that, that spurs them on to this. 
So these these studies demonstrate this for violence. Um, but what about other factors out of fairness? I think I read this even recently in a book on behavioral economics. Um, what was it called? Predictably irrational. I'm for, I'm at the moment I'm blanking yeah, on I the author's that, yeah, name. I've heard of that book. Yeah, and he was mentioning how um, students at I believe Harvard Business School were exposed to the Ten Commandments, and then they then they measured um, cheating on tests and stuff afterwards and found that just contemplation of the Ten Commandments made their responses more honest. Mm -hmm. now, now, to be mm -hmm. fair, they also used any, a secular code of ethics too. Civil, yeah, yes. civil words. Any, any, sort of, any sort of ethical code prompted more honesty. But you know, in fairness, once we get outside aggression, um, might exposure to these things have positive effects in yes. other areas like honesty and yeah, and that's the weird paradoxical thing because as we've talked about before in this show, the Bible is such a flexible text and that different people probably presumably based on their own preferences focus on different aspects of it. If you're a nice, forgiving person, you know, you happen to like – you probably like the New Testament, you know, turn yeah. the other cheek type stuff. And if, you, if you're a nasty person, you focus on the Old Testament smiting stuff. So if, you, if you're the type that's going to turn to that book to find inspiration to help the poor or something, it might make your world better. If you're going to open to it to find out to separate the sheep from the goats. We can talk about this in some uh, future episode too, but uh, many contextual things are much more important though than what than the background noise of your religion or your denomination. So like in this case, you know, that the, the direct context can affect somebody just like in Malcolm Gladwell talks about in Blink that you can have manipulations of somebody based upon context, the music you play. And so, yeah, so I think the point is that it's the way that you interpret your religion it has all kinds of flexible effects, which part of the Bible you focus on. Hmm. God damn it. It's so hard to say black and white concrete things from this stuff. All right, and that's going to do it for us for this week. We will be back in about a month or so with all sorts of swanky new improvements. Special thanks to all of the people who have helped us out along the way over the, the last year that we've been working at this. Uh, in the meantime, while we are gone, please keep sending us your email, questions, comments, challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com, especially for those upcoming episodes we've mentioned about child-rearing, marriage heathens in pop culture, our Crosshair series, if, you, if there's a particular apologist you'd like to see us take on. I've actually been really impressed by the amount of emails we've gotten and questions and stuff lately. Uh, yep. We want that to continue. It's, it's how we make this show better. It's how we you know what we're doing right yeah, and what we're doing wrong. How we tailor our programming to fit your needs and to kind of encourage that further. Between now and the middle of August, our next episode release, anybody who sends us an email um, with some sort of suggestion or feedback uh, as to what apologists would you like us to critique, you know, uh, any of the topics that Dave just mentioned, everybody who sends us an email will be entered into a drawing. We're going to give away a book from any of the authors that we have previously interviewed on the show. So if you liked Susan Jacoby and you wanted to read Freethinkers or 
Age of American Unreason, or if you enjoyed Christopher Hitchens. Or the sexy, sexy Austin Dacey. Or the sexy, sexy Austin Dacey. Who else? Tanner, Tanner Edis. Paul Kurtz. Whoever wins, wins the drawing, we will contact you by email, and you can select one of the books of your choice, and we will send it out to you. Possibly even a signed copy, I think. is A, a few of them we do have mm-hmm. signed copies of available. So a little, uh, little extra incentive to help us make this show better. In the meantime, feel free to find us on Facebook. We have a group. We have a fan page. We have Flair. Um, contact us through Facebook if you want. Also on MySpace, which is myspace.com slash doubtreligion. And, of course, on our blog site, which is doubtcast.org. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you again in a month. For episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Thank you.